0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Books Part 11, Chapter 2, Part 2 of 3. We are breaking it up into 3, hey, maybe 4, who knows, see how long we can break this thing up. There's literally, st- I feel like I've been reading this chapter for a month and there's still like 20 pages left, so... Oh, I don't know, we're all in cl- uh, in class taking a lesson with a teacher that we don't know and a cast of students that we don't know, learning in great detail about a setting which will retire in the next three chapters. Why? It seems just so strange to me to set up all these people in this place and then that's it. Tony Carlisle says, I think we're seeing Hanno's day in such detail because the focus is on how this simple school day feels like a horrific ordeal to him because of his mental problems. It's a kind of microcosm of all the decay that had befallen the Buddenbrooks. While his grandfather could easily navigate the market, his father found it difficult to keep himself running, conducting city business. (coughs) Hanno can't even get through the day without extreme anxiety and distress. I think the teachers also symbolise how the petite bourgeoisie of the German empire, strict, materialistic, and efficient, showing that the virtues that once defined families like the Bunbrooks have a new form in post-industrial capitalism, one that alienates and ultimately kills the remnants of the old world. Very good. Okay, so it's like a bit of a microcosm of everything we've seen so far with the family. And their anxiety anxieties, I just love, I love how I get the hiccups every time I do a podcast these days, I love it, welcome back Heming Brainiacs for the Heming Brainiac List podcast for part 11 chapter 2, 2 of 3, probably 3, come on we surely we got a chapter to finish this chapter today, um, we are in class taking a lesson with a teacher we don't know and a cast of students we don't know learning a great detail about a setting which we will retire within the next three chapters why, why is the author chosen to introduce all this new stuff which is great I just wish it happened earlier and then we got to explore it a bit you know, it feels too too late in the book for this And uh, it's frustrating me, to be honest, because I'm really enjoying this chapter, even though I do wish it was broken up, Um, but it just feels like the wrong time to start engaging me in Hanno's life. I'm really interested. Um, Anyway, Tony Carlisle says, I think we're seeing Hanno's day in such detail because the focus is on how this simple school day feels like a horrific ordeal to him. Um, because of his mental problems. It's a kind of microcosm of all the decay that had befallen the Buttonbrooks. While his grandfather could easily navigate the market, his father found it difficult to keep himself running and conducting city business. Hanno can't even get through the day without extreme anxiety and distress. I think the teachers also symbolise the new petite bourgeois in the German Empire. Strict, materialistic and efficient, showing that the virtues that once defined families like the Buttonbrooks have a new form in post-industrial capitalism, one that alienates and ultimately kills the remnants of the old world. It's always the Germans <coughs> coming in with their German ways that um, seems like every author has this something to say about the German way of doing things. Swim says the mum Fishy has this to say, I know this is way off topic, but my 90-year-old mother passed away to somewhere yesterday. Ah... Uh, Hey, oh, that sucks, dude. Uh, Since my dad, best dad ever, passed several years ago, I'm now an elderly orphan. Oh, well, swim. Real sorry to hear it. That's, um, oh, on. Well, we're, we're here for you. I know, um, we're kind of scattered all around the world. And, um, a loosely band together bunch of people <laughs> from you know, every corner of the world. And we come here every day, but um, it still saddens me to hear some news like that. So, um, you know, we're here if you need us. Um, uh, what else did you have to say there? It was expected, but still hard. Much to do. If, yeah, I bet. So you might not be hearing much from me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Just wanted to let you all know. Well, thanks for letting us know. Sorry, for, I don't know if I should actually broadcast this across the podcast now that I've read it, but... Hey, why not? Um, Yeah, sorry to hear it, Um, and yeah, you know, we're here when you need us, when you want us. Techrific says this, I think man suffers a bit from adjective sickness. I can see Anders' legitimate frustration with this usually piling adjectives on top of one another is a telltale sign of French literature, but man seems to have adopted this literary behaviour. We know he'd read Flaubert, so maybe there's some emulation going on here. <laughs> Sorry for the frustration. I always wonder, oh, that must be so tedious to listen to me rant and rave about something like that, but, you know, if you do this every day, sometimes you end up doing it whilst in an impatient mood, I suppose. Uh, why this deep dive into Hanno so far? A chapter in this book usually spans everything from weeks, months, and even years in some cases. Clearly man is making a point here. Maybe the whole point of the story, sadly, I haven't quite figured out what the point he's trying to make, so I have to suspend judgment, but I do understand Anders' frustration and I share it to some extent. I think my frustration it was just exacerbated from just general tiredness and, and stuff other than man's fault. And maybe we're in the middle of a, an absolute brilliant, masterpiece best chapter in the whole book you know I've got this feeling that maybe it's like the the crux of the book this chapter um, but again uh, similar to what you've said there Tech Tick, I, Tick, I also feel like I don't quite get it either but maybe yeah like life moves real quick right in this book chapters cover years sometimes and this one chapter is so far just covered a morning And maybe that's what it's saying, you know, the adults are running around, things are flying by, days, months, years. And at the same time, if you're a kid, you know, your life happens to you, you know, moment by moment. And um, a little thing like sitting in class to a child can feel like it's everything, you know, it's a whole lifetime. Davy Bone says this feels like the first chapter in a tween novel (laughs) subconsciously I'm ready for the inciting incident to occur it does doesn't it I like it though like you know I love a coming of age novel and that's what this chapter feels like the beginning of to me Uh, and it's I think part of my frustration is it's like why is this happening now uh, when we're about to say goodbye to these characters Um, but yeah I'm enjoying it. I will say that. Even though I'm frustrated by the length and the descriptiveness and all and the and, and the positioning, I guess, of the chapter. That's more of a broader pacing issue, but the chapter itself I am actually enjoying. All right, here we go. Let's keep reading. Her button brook said Dr. mantulsack and stared at him sharply through his glasses with his prominent sapphire blue eyes. Will you have the goodness? Very well, then, It it was to be. It had to come. It had come differently from his expectations, but still here it was, and he was nonetheless lost. But he was calm. Would it be a very big row? He rose in his place and was about to utter some forlorn and absurd excuse to the effect that he had forgotten to study the lines when he became aware that the boy ahead of him was offering him Open book. This boy, Hans Hermann Killian, was a small brown lad with oily hair and broad shoulders. He had set his heart on becoming an officer and was so possessed by an ideal of comradeship that he would not leave in the lurch even little Buttermilk, whom he did not like. He pointed with his finger to the place. Hanno gazed down upon it and began to read. With trembling voice, his face working, he read of the golden age, when truth and justice flourished of their own free will, without laws or compulsions. Punishment and fear did not exist, he said in Latin. No threats were graven upon the bronze tablets, nor did those who came to petition fear the countenance of the judges. He read in fear and trembling, read with design, badly and disjointedly, purposely omitted some of the... Elysians that were marked with pencil in Killian's book made mistakes in the lines, progressed with apparent difficulty and constantly expected the master to discover the fraud and pounce upon him. The guilty satisfaction of seeing the open book in front of him gave him a prickling sensation in his skin. But at the same time, he had such a feeling of disgust that he intentionally deceived as badly as possible simply to make the deceit seem less vulgar to himself he came to the end, and a pause ensued, during which he did not dare look up. He felt convinced that Dr. Mantlesack had seen all, and his lips were perfectly white, but at length the master sighed and said, O, oh, Buddenbrook, C Tacusus, you will permit me that class, classical thou for this once. Do you know what you have done? You have conducted yourself like a vandal, a barbarian. You are a humorous, Buddenbrook. I can see that by your face. If I ask myself whether you have been coughing or whether you have been reciting the noble verse, I should incline to the former. Tim showed small feeling for rhythm, but compared to you, he is a genius, a rhapsodist. Sit down, unhappy wretch. You have studied the lines, I cannot deny it, and I am constrained to give you a good mark. You have probably done your best, but tell me, have I not told you that you are musical, that you play the piano. How is it possible? Well, very well. Sit down. You've worked hard. That must suffice. He put a good mark down in his book, and Hanno Buddenbrook took his seat. He felt, as Tim, the rhapsodist, had felt before him that he really deserved the praise which Miss Dr. Mantelsack gave him. Yes, at the moment he was of the p- opinion that he was, if rather a dull yet an industrious pupil, who had come off with honour comparatively speaking. He was conscious that all his schoolmates, not excepting Hans Hermann Killian, had the same view, yet he felt at the same time somewhat nauseated, pale, trembling, too exhausted to think about what had happened. He closed his eyes and sank back in lethargy. Dr. Mandelsack, however, went on with the lesson. He came to the verses that were to have been prepared for today and called up Peterson. Peterson rose, fresh, lively, sanguine, in a stout attitude, ready for the fray, Yet today, even today, was destined to see his fall. Yes, the lesson hour was not to pass without a catastrophe far worse than that which had befallen the hapless, short-sighted mum. Peterson translated, glancing now and then at the other page of his book, which, sound, which should have had nothing on it. He did it quite cleverly. He acted as though something there distracted him, a speck of dust perhaps, which he brushed with his hand or tried to blow away. And yet there followed the catastrophe. Dr. Mantlesack made a sudden violent movement, which was responded to on Peterson's part by a similar movement, and in the same moment the master left his seat, dashed headlong down from his platform, and approached Peterson with long, impetuous strides. You have a crib in your book, he said as he came up. A crib, I know, stammered Peterson. He was a charming lad with a great wave of blonde hair on his forehead and lovely blue eyes, which now flickered in a frightening way. Sorry, in a frightened way. (coughs) You have no crib in your book, a crib, her doctor? No, really, I haven't. You are mistaken. You are accusing me falsely. Peterson betrayed himself by the unnatural correctness of his language which he used in order to intimidate so inti- to intimidate the master. I' am not deceiving you, he repeated in the greatest greatness of his need. I have always been honourable my whole life long. Dr. Mallin's mantlesack was all too certain of the painful fact. Give me your book, he said coldly. Peterson clung to his book. He raised it up in both hands and went on protesting. He stammered. His tongue grew thick. Believe me, her doctor, there is nothing in the book. I have no crib. I have not deceived you. I have always been honorable. Give me your book, repeated the master, stamping his foot. Then Peterson collapsed, and his face grew gray. Very well, said he, and delivered up his book. Here it is, yes. There is a crib in it. You can see for yourself. There it is. "'But I haven't used it,' he suddenly shrieked, quite at random. Dr. Mantelsack ignored this idiotic lie which was rooted in despair. He drew out the crib, looked at it with an expression of extreme disgust, as if it were a piece of decaying offal, thrust it into his pocket, and threw the volume of Ovid contemptuously back on Peterson's desk. "'Give me the class register,' he said in a hollow voice. Adolf Todtenhaupt dutifully fetched it, Peterson received a mark for dishonesty, which effectually demolished his chances of being sent up at Easter. You are the shame of the class, said Dr. Mantlesack. Peterson sat down. He was condemned. His neighbor avoided contact with him. Everyone looked at him with a mixture of pity, aversion, and disgust. He had fallen utterly and completely because he had been found out. There was but one opinion as to Peterson, and that was that he was, in very truth, the shame of the class. They recognised and accepted his fall as they had the rise of Tim and Buttonbrook and the unhappy mum's mischance, and Peterson did too. Thus, most of this class of twenty-five young folk, being sound and strong constitution, armed and prepared to wage the battle of life as it is, took things just as they found them, and did not at this moment feel any offence or uneasiness, dictated the next lesson, and then the third period too was a thing of the past. Everybody was in good spirits now, even Peterson, despite the blow he had received, for the next hour was likely to be a jolly one. Not a soul felt any qualms before it, and it even promised occasion for entertainment and mischief. This was English, with candidate Morrison, a young Philogian who had been for a few weeks on trial in the faculty, or as Kaya Count Mollen had put it, he was feeling a limited engagement with the company. There was little prospect, however, of his being re-engaged. His classes were much too entertaining. Some of the form remained in the chemistry hall. Others went up to the classroom. Nobody needed to go down and freeze in the courtyard because Her Mordison was in charge up in the corridor and he never dared send anyone down. Moreover, there were preparations to be made for his reception. The room did not become in the least quieter when it rang for the fourth hour. Everybody chatted and laughed and prepared to see some fun Count Moln, his head in his hands, went on reading Roderick Usher. Hanno was audience, some of the boys imitated the voices of animals, there was the shrill crowing of a cock, and Wazer in the back row grunted like a pig without anybody's being able to see what the noise came from his inside. On the blackboard was a huge chalk drawing, a caricature, with squinting eyes drawn by Tim the Rhapsodist, and when Herm Moreson entered he could not shut the door even with the most violent efforts. Because there was a thick fur cone in the crack, Adolf helped had to take it away. Candidate Morrison was, in, was an undersized, insignificant-looking man. His face was always contorted with a sour, peevish expression, and he walked with one shoulder thrust forward. He was frightfully self-conscious, blinked, drew in his breath, and kept opening his mouth as if he wanted to say something if you could only think of it. Three steps from the door, he trod on a cracker of such exceptional quality that it made a noise like dynamite. He jumped violently then. In these straits, he smiled exactly as though nothing had happened and took his place before the middle row of benches, stooping sideways in his customary attitude and resting one palm on the desk in front of him. But this posture of his was familiar to everybody. Somebody had put some ink on the right spot and her... "'Mortison's small, clumsy hand got all inky. "'He acted as though he had not noticed, "'laid his wet, black hand on his back, blinked, "'and said in a soft, weak voice, "'The order in the classroom leaves something to be desired. "'Hanno Buddenbrook loved him in that moment, "'sat quiet still and looked up into his worried, helpless face, "'but was vogel, grunted louder than ever, "'and a handful of peas went rattling against the window "'and bounced back into the room.' "'It's hailing,' somebody said quite loudly. "'Herm Mortensen appeared to believe this, "'for he went without more ado to the platform and asked for the register. "'He needed it to call the names from, "'for, though he had been teaching the class for five or six weeks, "'he hardly knew any of them by name. "'Fetterman,' he said, "'will you please recite the poem?' "'Absent,' shouted a chorus of voices, "'and there sat Fetterman, large as life in his place, "'shooting peas with great skill and accuracy. "'Herm Mortensen blinked again and selected a new name.' "'Weservogel,' he said. "'Dead!' shouted Peterson, attacked by a grim humour, and the chorus, grunting, crowing, and with shouts of derision, asseverated that Weservogel was dead. Herm Watterson blinked afresh, he looked about him, drew down his mouth and put his finger on another name at the register. "'Perlman,' he said, without much confidence. "'Unfortunately, gone mad,' uttered Kai, Count Moln with great clarity and precision, and this also was confirmed by the chorus amid an ever-increasing tumult. Then her mortison stood up and shouted in to the hubbub, You will do me a hundred lines in position. If you laugh again, I shall be obliged to mark you. Then he sat down again. It was true that Hanno had laughed. He had been seized by a quiet but violent spasm of laughter, and went on because he could not stop. He had found Kay's joke so good the unfortunately had especially appealed to him. But he became quiet when her Mortelson attacked him, and sat looking solemnly into the candidate's face. He observed at that moment every detail of the man's appearance, saw every pathetic little hair in that scanty beard which showed the skin through it, saw his brown, empty, disconsolate eyes, saw that he had on what appeared to be two pairs of cuffs because the sleeves of his shirt came down so long, saw the whole pathetic, inadequate figure he made. He saw more he saw into the man's inner self. Hanno Buddenbrook was almost the only pupil whom her mortison knew by name, and he availed himself of the knowledge to call him constantly to order, give him impositions, and tyrannize over him. He had distinguished Buddenbrook from the others simply because of his quieter behavior, and of this he took advantage to make him feel his authority, an authority he did not dare exert upon the real offender's. Hannah looked at him and reflected that her Mortensen's lack of fine feeling made it almost impossible even to pity him. I don't bully you, he addressed the candidate in his thoughts. I don't share in the general tormenting like the others. And how do you repay me? Ah, But so it is, and so it will be always and everywhere, he thought, and fear, and that sensation almost amounting to physical nausea, one moment physical nausea sorry I lost my spot I had to alt tab for a second there and fear and that sensation almost amounting to physical nausea rose again in him and the most dreadful thing is that I can't help seeing through you with such disgusting clearness at last, Herr Morrison found someone who was neither dead nor crazy and who would take it upon himself to repeat the English verse. This was a poem called The Monkey, a poor childish composition required to be committed to memory by these growing lads whose thoughts were already mostly bent on business, on the sea, on the coming conflicts of actual life. Monkey, little merry fellow, thou art nature's punchinello. There were endless verses. Casbourne read them quite simply out of his book. Nobody needed to trouble himself about what her Mortison thought. The noise grew worse and worse. The feet shuffled and scraped the dusty floor. The cock crowed. The pig grunted. Peas filled the air. The five and twenty were drunk with disorder and the unregulated instincts of their years awoke. They drew obscene pictures on pieces of paper, passed them about, and laughed at them greedily. All at once everything was still. The pupil who was then reciting interrupted himself... Even her mortison got up and listened. They heard something charming, a pure bell-like sound coming from the bottom of the room and flowing sweetly, sinuously, an indescribably tender effect on the sudden silence. It was a musical box which somebody had brought, playing Du, Du, Licht, Mia, Erhausen, uh, in the middle of the English lesson, but precisely at that moment when the me- little melody died away, something frightful ensued. It broke like a sudden storm over the heads of the class, unexpected, cruel, overwhelming, paralyzing, without anybody's having knocked. The door opened wide with a great shove, and the presence came in, high and huge, growled, and stood with a single stride in front of the benches. It was the Lord God. Her mortison grew a shy, pale, and dragged down the chair from the platform, dusting it with the handkerchief. The pupils had sprung up like one man. They pressed their arms to the sides, stood on their tiptoes, bent their heads, and bit their tongues in the fervor of the devotion. The deepest silence reigned. Somebody grasped with the effort he made, and then all was still again. Director Woolick measured the saluting columns for a while with his eye. He lifted his arm with its dirty, funnel-shaped cuff and let it fall with the fingers spread out as if he were attacking a keyboard. Sit down, he said in his double bass voice. The pupils sank back into their seats. Herm Watterson pulled up the chair with trembling hands, and the director sat down beside the dace. Please proceed, he said. That was all, but it sounded as frightful as if the words were uttered had been Now we shall see, and woe to whom who. The reason for this coming was clear. Her Mortison was to give evidence of his ability to teach, to show what the lower second had learned in the six or seven hours he had been with them. It was a question of Her Mortison's existence and future. The candidate was a sorry figure, as he stood on the platform and called again on somebody else to recite the monkey, Up to now it had been only the pupils who were examined, but now it was the master as well. Alas, it went badly on both sides. Herr Director Woollick's appearance was entirely unexpected, and only two or three of the pupils were prepared. It was impossible for Herr Mödersen to call up Adolf Tottenhout. For the whole hour on end, after the monkey had been recited once, it could not be asked for again, and so things were in a bad way. When the reading from Ivanhoe began, young Count Molin was the only person who could translate it all uh, at all, he having a personal interest in the novel. The others hemmed and hawed, stuttered, and got hopelessly stuck. Hanno Buddenbrook was called up and could not do a line. Director Woolick gave utterance to a sound that was as though the lowest string of his double bass had been violently plucked, and Herm Mordison wrung his small, clumsy, inky hands, repeating plaintively over. And over, and it went so well, it always went so well, he was still saying it, half to the pupils and half to the director Who, when the bell rang. But the Lord God stood erect with folded arms before his chair and stared in front of him over the heads of the class, Then he commanded that the register be brought and solely marked down for laziness, all those pupils whose performance of the morning had been deficient or entirely lacking, six or seven marks at once fell swoop. Uh, he f- could not put down a mark for her, Watterson, but he was much worse than the others. He stood there with a face like chalk, broken done for. Hanno Buddenbrook was among those marked down, and Director Woollock said, "'Besides, I will spoil all your careers for you.' Then he went. <coughs> the bell rang. Class was over. It was always like that. When you expected trouble, it did not come. When you thought all was well, then the catastrophe— It was now impossible for Hanno to go up at Easter. He rose from his seat and went drearily out of the room, seeking the aching back tooth with his tongue. Kai came up to him and put his arm across his shoulders. Together they walked down the courtyard among the crowd of excited comrades, all of whom were discussing the extraordinary event. He looked with loving anxiety into Hanno's face and said, "'Please forgive me, Hanno, for translating. It would have been better to keep still and get a mark. It's so cheap.' Didn't I say what Porter Jervis Aboa meant? answered Hanno. Don't mind, Kai, that doesn't matter. One just mustn't mind. I suppose that's true. Well, the Lord God is going to ruin your career. You may as well resign yourself, Hanno, because if it is his inscrutable will career, what a lovely word career is Her Mordeson's career is spoilt too. He would never be a master, poor chap. There are assistant masters, you may know, and there are headmasters, but never by any chance a plain master. This is a mystery not to be revealed to youthful minds. It is only intended for grown-ups and persons of mature experience. An ordinary intelligence might say that either one is a master or one is not. I might go up to the Lord God or Hermaritsch and explain this to go to him, but what would be the result? They would consider it an insult, and I should be punished for insubordination, all for having discovered for them a much higher significance in their calling than they themselves were aware of. No, let's not talk about them. They're all thick-skinned brutes. They walked about the court. Kai made jokes to help Hanno forget his bad mark, and Hanno listened and enjoyed. Look, here is a door, an outer door. It is open, and outside there is a street. How would it be if I were to go out and take a little walk? It is recess, and we have still six minutes. We could easily be back in time. We're back in time. But it is perfectly impossible. You see what I mean? Here is the door. It is open. There is no grating. There is nothing, nothing whatever to prevent us. And yet it is impossible for us to step outside for even a second. It is even impossible for us to think of doing so. Well, let's not think of it then. Let's take another example. We don't say, for instance, that it is nearly half past twelve. No, we say it's nearly time for the geography period. You see? Now I ask, is this any sort of life to lead? Everything is wrong, oh O Lord. If the institution would just once let us out of here, of her loving embrace. Well, and what then? No, Kai, we should just have to do something then. Here, at least, we are taken care of. Since my father died, her, Stefan Kistenmarker, and Pastor Pringsheim have taken over the business of asking me every day what I want to be. I don't know. I can't answer. I can't be anything. I'm afraid of everything. How can anybody talk so dismally? What about your music? "'What about my music, Kai? "'There's nothing to it. "'I shall travel around and give concerts in the first place. "'They wouldn't let me, and in the second place "'I should never really know enough. "'I can play very little. "'I can only improvise a little when I'm alone, "'and then the travelling about must be dreadful, I imagine. "'It is different for you. "'You have more courage. "'You go about laughing at it all, "'and you haven't something yet to set against it. "'You want to write, to tell wonderful stories. "'Well, that is something. "'You will surely become famous. "'You're so clever. "'The thing is... You're so much livelier. Sometimes in class we look at each other and the way we did when Peterson got marked because he reached out of a crib when all the rest of us did the same. The same thought is in both our minds but you know how to make a face and let it pass. I can't. I get so tired of things. I'd like to sleep and never wake up. I'd like to die, Kai. No, I'm no good. I can't want anything. I don't want to be famous. I'm afraid of it just as much as if I were a wrong. it were a wrong thing to do. Nothing can come of me that is perfectly sure. One day, after confirmation class, I heard Pastor Pringsham tell everybody that one must give me up, because I come of a deceased, of a decayed family. Did he say that? Kai asked with deep interest. Yes, he meant my Uncle Christian in the institution in Hamburg. One must just give me up. Oh, I'd be so happy if they would. I have so many worries. Everything is so hard for me. If I give myself a little cut or bruise anywhere and make a wound... That would heal in a week with anybody else. It takes a month with me. It gets inflamed and infected and makes me all sorts of trouble. Herb Brech told me lately that all my teeth are in a dreadful condition, not to mention the ones that have been pulled already. If they are like that now, what will they be like when I'm thirty or forty years old? I'm completely discouraged. Oh, come, Kai said and struck into a livelier gait. Now you must tell me something about your playing. I want to write something marvellous. Perhaps I'll begin it today.' Drawing period. Will you play this afternoon? Hanno was silent a moment. A flush came upon his face, a painful, confused look. Yes, I'll play, I suppose, though I ought not. I ought to practice my sonatas and etudes and then stop, but I suppose I'll play. I cannot help it, though it only makes everything worse. Worse? Hanno was silent. I know what you mean, said Kai after a bit, and then neither of the lads spoke again. They were both at the same difficult age. Kai's face burned, and he cast down his eyes. Haddo looked pale and serious, with his eyes clouded over, and he kept giving sideways glances. Then the bell rang, and they went up. The geography period came next at an important test on the kingdom of Hesnasau. A man Hes Hes-na-sao, a man with a red beard and brown tailcoats came in. His face was pale, and his hands were very full of paws, but without a single hair. This was the clever one, Dr. Mausam he suffered from occasional hemorrhages and always spoke in an ironic tone because it was his pose to be considered as witty as he was ailing. He possessed a heen collection, a quantity of papers and objects connected with that cynical and sickly poet. He proceeded to mark the boundaries of hesse Nassau on the map that hung on the wall and then asked with a melancholy, mocking smile if the gentleman would indicate to their, in their books the important features of the country. It was as though he meant to make game of the class and of... Hess Nassau, as well, yet this was an important test and much dreaded by the entire form. Hanno Buddenbrook ne- knew next to nothing about Hess Nassau. He tried to look at Adolf Top- Todtenhout's book, but Heinrich Hayne, who had a pre- penetrating observation despite his suffering, melancholy air, pounced on him at once and said, Her Buddenbrook, I am tempted to ask you to close your book, but that I suspect you would be glad to have me do so. Go on with your work. The remark contained two witticisms. First, that Dr. Malsam addressed Hanno as her button book, and second, that about the copy book. Hanno continued to brood over his book and handed it in almost empty when he went out with Kai. The difficulties were now over with for the day. The fortunate ones who had come through without marks had light and easy consciences, and life seemed like play to them as they betook themselves. To the large well-lighted room where they might sit and draw under the supervision of her drug plaster casts from the antiques stood about the room and there was a great cupboard containing divers pieces of wood and a doll furniture which served as models her dagon was a thick set man with a full round beard and a smooth cheap brown wig which stood out in the back of his neck and betrayed itself he possessed two wigs one with a longer hair and one with shorter and if he had had his beard cut he would don the shorter wig as well He was a man with some droll peculiarities of speech. For instance, he called a lead pencil a lead. He gave out an oily alcoholic odour, and it was said of him that he drank petroleum. It always delighted him to have an opportunity to take a class in something besides drawing on such occasions. He would lecture on the policy of Bismarck, accompanying himself with impressive spiral gestures from his nose to his shoulder. Social democracy was his bugbear. He spoke of it with fear and loathing. We keep, must keep together, he used to say to the refractory pupil, pupils, pinching them on the arm. Social democracy is at our door. He was possessed by a sort of spasmodic activity. would sit down next to a pupil exhaling a strong, spirituous odor, tap him on the forehead with his scowl ring, shoot out certain isolated words and phrases like perspective, light and shade, the lead, social democracy, stick together, and then dash off again. Kai worked at his new literary... "'Project during this period, and Hanno occupied himself with conducting in fancy an overture with full orchestra. "'Then school was over. They fetched down their things. The gate was opened. They were free to pass, and they went home. "'Hanno and Kai went the same road together as far as the little red villa, their books under their arms. "'Young Count Mullen had a good distance farther to go alone before he reached the paternal dwelling. "'He never wore an overcoat. The morning's fog had turned to snow, which came down in great white flocks and rapidly became slush. They parted at Buddenbrook Gate, but when Hanno was halfway up the garden, Kai came back to put his arm about his neck. "'Don't give up. Better not play,' he said gently. Then his slender, careless figure disappeared in the whirling snow. Hanno put down his books on the bear's tray in the corridor and went into the living room to see his mother. She sat on the sofa, reading a book with a yellow paper cover, and looked up as he crossed the room. She gazed at him with her brown, close-set, blue-shadowed eyes as he stood before her. He took his head in both her hands and kissed him on the brow. He went upstairs, where Fräulein Clementine had some luncheon ready for him, washed and ate. When he was done, he took out out of his desk a packet of little, biting Russian cigarettes and began to smoke. He was no stranger to their use by now. Then... He sat down at the harmonium and played something from Bach, something very severe and difficult in fugue form. At length he clasped his hands behind his head and looked out the window at the snow noiselessly tumbling down. Nothing else was to be seen, for there was no longer a charming little garden with a plashing fountain beneath his window. The view was cut off by the grey side wall of the neighbouring villa. Dinner was at four o'clock and Hanno, his mother and Fraulein and Clementine sat down to it. After Hanno saw that there was preparations for music in the salon and waited his mother at the piano. They played the sonata, opus 24 of Beethoven, in the adagio the violin sang like an angel, but Gerda took. The instrument from her chin, with a dissatisfied air, looked at the irritation and said it was not in tune. She played no more, but went up to rest. Hannah remained in the salon. He went to the glass door that led out... On the small veranda and looked into the drenched garden, but suddenly he took a step back and jerked the cream-coloured curtains across the door, so that the room lay in a soft yellow twilight. Then he went to the piano, he stood for a while, and his gaze directed fixed, and unseeing upon a distant point, altered slowly, drew, grew blurred and vague and shadowy. He sat down at the instrument and began to improvise. It was a simple motif which he enjoyed, employed a mere trifle, an unfinished fragment of melody in one bar and a half. He brought it out first with unsuspected power in the bass as a single voice indicating it as the source and fount of all that was to come and announcing it with a commanding entry by a burst of trumpets it was not quite easy to grasp his intention but when he repeated and harmonized it in the treble with a timbre, timbre like dull silver it proved to consist essentially of a single resolution a yearning and painful melting of one tone into another a short-winded, pitiful invention which nevertheless gained a strange, mysterious, and significant value precisely by means of the meticulous and solemn precision with which it was defined and produced. And now there began more lively passages, of restless coming and going of syncopated sound, seeking, wandering, torn by shrieks like a soul in unrest, and tormented by some knowledge it possesses and cannot conceal, but must repeat in ever different harmonies, questioning, complaining, protesting, demanding, dying away, the syncopation increased, grew more profound, Driven hither and thither by scampering triplets and shrieks of fear reoccurred, they took form and became melody. There was a moment when they dominated in in a mounting, imploring chorus of wind instruments that conquered the endlessly thronging, welling, wandering, vanishing harmonies and swelled out in unmistakable, simple rhythms. A crushed, childlike, imposing, imploring chorale. This concluded with a sort of ecclesiastical... Cadence, a ferment, followed a silence, and then quite softly, in a timbre of dull silver, there came the first motif again, the paltry invention of figure, either tiresome or obscure, a sweet sentimental dying away of one tone into another. This was followed by a tremendous uproar, a wild activity, punctuated by notes like fanfares expressive of violent resolve. What was coming then? came horns again, sounding the march, there was an assembling, a concentrating firm, consolidated rhythms, and a new figure began, a bold improvisation, a sort of lively, stormy, haunting song, there was no joy in this haunting song, it, its notes was one of defiant despair, signals sounded through it, yet they were not only signals, but cries of fear, while throughout, winding through it all, through all the writhing, bizarre harmonies, came again, that mysterious first motif, wandering in despair, torturingly sweet, and now began a ceaseless hurry of events, whose sense and meaning could not be guessed, and the restless flood of sound, and ventures adventures, rhythms, harmonies welling up uncontrolled from the keyboard, as they shaped themselves under Hanno's labouring fingers, he experienced them as it were. He did not know them beforehand. He sat a little bent over the keys with parted lips and deep-fired gaze, his brown hair covering his forehead with his soft curls. What was the meaning of what he played? Were these images of fearful difficulties surmounted? Flames passed through and torments swum, castles stormed and dragons slain, but always now like a yelling laugh, now like an ineffably sweet promise, the original motif wound of through it all. The pitiful phrase, with its notes melting into one another, now the music seemed to rouse itself to new and gigantic efforts. Wild runs in octaves followed, sounding like shrieks, an irresistible mounting, a chromatic upward struggle, a wild, relentless longing, abruptly broken by startling, arresting pianissimo which gave a sensation as if the ground were disappearing from beneath one's feet or like a sudden abandonment and sinking into the gulf of desire. Once far off and softly warming... Warning sounded the first chords of the imploring prayer, but the flood of rising cacophonies overwhelmed them with their rolling, streaming, clinging, sinking, and struggling up again as though they fought on toward the end that must come must come this very moment at the height of this fearful climax where the pressure for of longing had become intolerable, and it came, it could no longer be kept back, those spasms of yearning could no longer not be prolonged. And it came as though curtains were rent apart, doors sprang open, thorn hedges parted of themselves, walls of flame sank down, the resolution, the redemption, the complete fulfillment, a chorus of jubilation burst forth, and everything resolved itself in a harmony, and the harmony in sweet retardando at once sank into another. It was the motif, the first motif, and now began a festival, a triumph, an unbounded orgy of this very figure, which now displayed a wealth of dynamic color, which passed through every octave, wept and shivered in tremolo, sang, rejoiced, and sobbed in exultation, triumphantly adorned with all the bursting, tinkling, foaming, purling resources of orchestral pomp. The fantastical worship of this worthless trifle, this scrap of melody, this brief childish harmonic invention, only a bar and a half in length that had about it something stupid and gross, and at the same time something ascetic and religious, something that contained the essence of faith and renunciation. There was a quality of the perverse in the insatiability with which it was produced and reveled in. There was a sort of cynical despair. There was a longing for joy, a yielding to desire, in the way the last drop of sweetness was, as it were, extracted from the malady till exhaustion, disgust and satiety, supervened. Then at last, at last, in the weariness after excess, a long soft arpeggio in the minor trickled through mounted a tone, resolved itself in the major, and died in mournful, lingering away. Hanno sat still a moment, his chin on his breast, his hands in his lap, then he got up and closed the instrument. He was very pale, there was no strength in his knees, and his eyes were burning. He went into the next room, stretched himself on the chaise lounge, and remained for a long time motionless. Later there was supper, and he played a game of chess with his mother, at which neither side won. But until after midnight, he still sat in his room before his harmonium and played, played in thought only, for he must not make noise. He did this despite his firm intention to get up the next morning at half past five to do some most necessary preparation. This was one day in the life of little Johann. It certainly was. Little Johann, quite the pianist, I must say. I couldn't hear that, but I felt like I could hear it. I feel like I still experienced it. Very cool. All right, folks, that's that one. We are on the home stretch now, just a few chapters to go. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow.